This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a new source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. We got some startling information from Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance this week. The CCF's research showed that in the mere two months since China cracked down on Bitcoin, the U.S. has suddenly become the biggest mining location in the world, and China has been left with essentially zero capacity. That data shows that as of the end of August, the U.S. accounted for more than 35% of the global hash rate. By that, we mean the total worldwide computational power used to mine Bitcoin. That's more than double the 16.8% that it represented at the end of April. Other destinations have also surged, such as Kazakhstan which is now in second place with 18.1% of total hash rate and third place Russia with 11%. What's also notable is that even though the Chinese crackdown resulted in a 38% drop in total hash rate initially, it was a 20% rebound from that low as of the end of August, which suggests that the shift is at least partly explained by mining being relocated from China to the US and elsewhere. According to blockchain.com, the total hash rate has continued to expand since then, and anecdotal evidence suggests that the U.S. continues to add new mining facilities as the recovery progresses. There are so many interesting implications to this shift. One is just to marvel at how quickly it occurred, which speaks to the efficiencies that the Bitcoin mining industry has developed for deploying mining capacity in responding quickly to shifts in demand, price, and in this case, the regulatory environment. What does this say about geopolitical implications or the outlook for regulation in the U.S. as it becomes a Bitcoin powerhouse? And most importantly, to address a topic that we've addressed a number of times on Money Reimagined, does this create an opportunity for the US to lead the push for renewable energy-based mining, not only to make Bitcoin greener, but to collaborate with energy developers to fund the expansion of a green grid more generally? To discuss all of that, we have two great guests for you again. We're joined by Justin Padola, the CEO of Elite Mining, and Coindesk's George Kaluta, who leads our Bitcoin-focused research. All right. Sheila, I mean, this is really quite striking. You know, one of the things that I find so compelling about this is what it says about the efficiency of this industry. You would think that installing capacity and machines and everything else is something that would take time. And therefore, this recovery would take quite a while. But it's moved so quickly and the balance has shifted so fast. Yeah, I think, you know, like it or not, here we are in a few months two months, I think, right into this, the U.S. is a Bitcoin superpower. (laughs) It's just kind of the factual reality now. And that's a a kind of a funny consequence of seeing, A, I think it's really interesting to see what the differences in regulation lead to. And to your point, just how rapid the developments in this space are. I think that leads to more general questions around the role of regulation in influencing this ecosystem beyond even mining and mining operations. I mean, that's one really important piece. But definitely it's a question around, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship here. 
And so the extent to which regulation takes a long time to enact is going to have an oversized impact on what people can do and how fast they can move, which is something I think every party, regulators and industries, is really starting to address and realize is an ongoing challenge. But yeah, I think the operations question here alone, you know, it's building the pyramids is one thing, you know, and shifting mining operations is another, or maybe not, you know, so really looking forward to hearing from our guests about how this all went down and what it means. Yeah, and Justin, I think probably let's bring you and George in, but to you in particular, yeah, maybe talk us through how this happens. It seems like, you know, we're talking about a lot of capacity now. These are not just little tiny CPU-based mining rigs. We're talking about installing these sophisticated, you know, data center-based type systems. But really, a lot has been added in a short period of time. Can you walk us through what it's like, you know, from a process perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You're right. It's quite marvelous. The most important thing to take note of is the swift nature of all of this being onboarded in the U.S. What's crazy is that If you look at historically, China has actually a lot more infrastructure that's already in place, ready to go, where the U.S. has been kind of flatlined over the past several years. You know, not flatlined, but just slowly, gradually increasing its energy capacities. And the U.S. overall wasn't really ready for the amount that was coming over. But every single little gap and sector of the United States, you know, geographically speaking, is being filled up all these small parts of the country. So it's pretty crazy how fast those spots have been found. And there's people, I mean, people on our staff, people that I know of, you know, many other mining companies that are just, they're looking everywhere, high and low to find the best possible outcome for their own mining operations. So it's been pretty crazy. And the most important thing is too, is like, when you're talking about Texas and the other states, the private sectors, energy companies that are more private are moving more quicker, right? So that is creating a more of an advantage for those private entities because they're more agile, where the state and public utilities are moving a lot slower. So that's another dynamic that I found really interesting as well. Can I ask a question just to baseline our listeners who I think don't necessarily understand this? How does a mining operation work? We've had content on this in the past, but for those who maybe didn't have the luxury of listening to those episodes, which we highly recommend you go back and check out as well. So would love to just provide our listeners with a visual on this. Like, what does this look like? You know, what does the typical mining operation entail? Just kind of do some baselining for that for us. Thanks, Justin, go for it. Yeah, no problem. It's really quite complicated because a lot of people think of mining, they just think of lots of machines running at a high-speed fan tick where it's this waning noise coming from this little building that sounds like something's about ready to blow up. And the thing is, is it's so much more detailed than that. The infrastructure required for new projects, it takes time. So You have a lot of R&D, a lot of study, trying to figure out the timing of the market. It's very similar to just like a, you know, dollar cost averaging yourself in the market. When do you buy the miners? Because, you know, Bitcoin price action always determines the price of miners themselves. So you got to be careful of that as well. And if you buy too high, then your ROI is going to be less. So there's a lot of factors that come into play when you're talking about actually starting an operation. The details of essentially how to start one, it's a conversation that would last too long. But to be you know, high level about it, it's basically sourcing power, good power. In our case, we, you know, we do renewables and prefer anything that's clean energy. Then you got to establish, okay, how do I get this on site? How do I build the infrastructure? How do I line up everybody that I need to develop the infrastructure? Because it's always, I always preach this as my mantra, it's infrastructure first, mining equipment second. A lot of people get that backwards and have thousands of miners sitting around doing nothing. So it's a major mistake a lot of new miners make. But Ultimately, that's the main three things there. And for us, like, it's really comes down to like, how can you simultaneously 
expand and grow your operations while maintaining your existing operations and making sure that they're sound and your ROI is good on those existing operations as well. So Justin, I'm going to follow up again, just to ask the question super literally, like some of our listeners, when they hear mines, they're imagining coal, they're imagining going underground and people coming out with like in Zoolander, right? With the sooty face and the whole thing. Like, can you just literally walk through a visual of what an operation looks like? Like what is the infrastructure involved, et cetera? It would be really helpful. Yeah. So typically when you go to a mining operation, there's one of two choices. One, there's like a large building is typically somewhere secluded for the most part or kind of in the middle of nowhere. The other option, number two, would be that you're going to walk into, you know, a decently crowded, you know, dense city and there'll be some random building somewhere, some old building typically where you're going to walk in, there's a bunch of miners and they're turned on. Nowadays, there's the option to evolve of a power companies have developed mining stations inside their own energy facilities. So ultimately, but that's what it is. You walk into a building, you see a bunch of these little ASIC miners. They're, you know, seven inches by 24 inches, roughly, you know, give or take. And there's just hundreds of them in there. And there's a lot of maintenance, a lot of people walking around, diagnosing miners, making sure they're running healthy. Anyone that goes down, they're pulling them off the shelves, putting them back on. And that's typically what a mining hub really is. It's just a, a lot of people, a lot of technicians, a lot of miners running simultaneously at the same time. And because 99% of mining, that's not a, you know, an actual factual statistic, but like 99% of mining is air, you're always going to hear this loud weaning noise. It's very loud usually. I remember walking through a Bitcoin mining facility sometimes and people's hair blowing the whole time from the fan. <laughs> exactly. Well, because it's the cooling costs, right? So when you imagine the heat that's generated, there's a lot of like the cooling costs alone, which is something I didn't realize in the early days until I, again, took a tour and it was like, oh, this is not at all what I imagined. And that is often the case in the crypto industry, the terminology we use, while it has a reason for the analogy, is really not, it doesn't give the right visual or understanding of what we're actually talking about here. Let's take that sort of physical description and then move this to sort of an economic analysis, George. You know, the idea of all that energy and the wind that comes from the fans and the cooling costs all speaks to the fact that there's a massive amount of very high-powered computational activity going on that requires energy, both to run it, but also to cool the machines and everything else. And that's why, you know, it is such an energy-consumptive industry. But what I found really interesting about Justin's you know, first comment was this idea that when China shut down, there was this sort of scramble in the US to find every little bit of opportunity. This idea that now you have potentially this more nimble setting where there's a little bit of you know, incremental advantage that can be had by adding a bit of capacity here and a bit of capacity there. And it sounds as if the US may be an easier environment for that. I mean, is that what's happening here? Are we moving from the sort of, is there more nimble, shorter focused, profitable kind of industry emerging at this moment within the mining sector? Yeah, Michael, I think from a high level, the way that I like to think about it is these Chinese businesses and people that are mining in China were basically told, hey, you can't do this anymore. You're not allowed to mine in this country. And they started scrambling and they thought, okay, where can I go to actually start doing this again? I need a place that has cheap energy, but also now I want to go to a place where it is more viewed as a more free market. So it sort of made a lot of sense that these Chinese miners moved outside of China and into more quote unquote, free economies in the US. To me, and again, I'm not someone on the ground, Justin is more doing the operations and stuff like that. But to me at a high level, it seemed almost obvious that they were gonna come to the US because it's a free market, right? I can go and 
as long as I work hard and put the money in the right place, then I can spend on my mining equipment. These are businesses that spend money on a lot of infrastructure and mining equipment up front, and they have a lot of sunk costs into this. So they're not just going to throw away their miners. So it actually made a lot of sense that they came to the U.S. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. Given the high cost of energy, wouldn't the logic seem to dictate that you go to whatever jurisdiction offered you the cheapest energy, period? And so how is that consideration reflected in the move to the U.S. on balance? How did that factor in, do you think, yeah? Sheila, I think it makes sense. But we did see an uptake in Kazakhstan, which has notoriously very, very cheap coal energy. So there are people, and it's closer to China, so there were people in China that I'm sure said, okay, there's really cheap energy in Kazakhstan, let's just go there. The issue you run into there is that you do feel the more Eastern government there as well, right? Like, what's to say that whatever government is in charge there can't just do the same thing? You're left finding, you're left holding the bag again, and you say, where do I go now? So there was potentially a possibility where people said, okay, let's go to the U.S., because if they shut us down, there's going to be a lot of ho-hum about it anyway. There are so many other options though, right? The, the Greenlands and the, the Northern Canada's and the whatnot. So I have to ask again, like it's not as if the US and Kazakhstan and China and Russia are the only options available. So what is it about those jurisdictions that's making them so attractive? Maybe this is a question for Justin, given this transition that's just happened. Yeah, my short addition to that would be, there's a lot of capital in the US. There are a lot of people who like Bitcoin in the US. So it's probably better access to money when they get here and say, oh, we have a hundred miners. And we're talking to whatever capital value. Like, oh, we'll give you money for 100 more. So there's potentially a capital problem there or a capital incentive there. But Justin probably has a better view than I do. Yeah, I mean, I would love to just chime in there. So he's definitely correct in that. The other thing, too, to take into account is the geopolitical environment, right? So there's a lot of these states, you know, the United States as a whole is not all aligned on exactly what Bitcoin is. But for the majority of the states, they're all saying, hey, come here. We'll give you tax incentives. We'll allow you to do this. We'll make it quicker for you. And we want your capital. And so they're taking in that capital very quickly. And yes, it's already, first of all, a better geopolitical climate, but also importantly, the all-in costs are pretty favorable in general sense. You know, a lot of the land in the U.S. is pretty cheap overall. So you can buy tens of acres, hundreds of acres in some cases, and start deploying your mining farms there. So, But in some respects, Justin, you, were just, you said it geopolitical, but you were describing, I think, probably as much of a, an economic scenario. I mean, it seems to me that geopolitical stuff is really interesting because, you know, there's a regulatory environment around the future of money that is intrinsically linked to this whole conversation. And, you know, one of the arguments that people would have about the challenge that China you know, represented when it had such a large stake of mining there was like, it had a de facto bottleneck over Bitcoin, right? That it could somehow manage the supply chain, it could shut things down and everything else. And now, of course, it's spread wider. So the first question I'd put to both of you is like, is this a more decentralized mining scenario now? And is that a good thing? The answer is yes. It's funny because I remember when the Chinese exodus initially happened, I had, I only know how many texts I had, just my phone was blowing up. And I'm just like, okay, so what's going on? Because I didn't even hear about the news. 
And I started scrolling down everything. I was like, holy crap, like this is actually happening. It was such a shocker. So for me, it was, okay, this has happened. What's going to happen as a result of this? And just the sheer fact that China lost its grip on and hold on Bitcoin as a whole is a good thing. Because even though I'm an entrepreneur at heart, all the people that had businesses over there, I feel very sorry for them. And I work with many of those people who are now coming over here. But at the end of the day, it's good as a whole for the space and also shows how anti-fragile the Bitcoin mining ecosystem is. So for me, it's actually a positive thing in the decentralization factor that you're speaking to. And furthermore, the one thing that's really interesting is when you're talking about Chinese people coming over here, there's also a culture injection as well. It changes kind of the environment because it's not just, you know, mostly and inherently, you know, Americans working here anymore. Now we have Chinese people coming over here who are taking advantage of the visas and bringing over workers from China because they want to actually land and be in the United States, which is going to increase diversity, which is cool as well. So I like both of those factors on the ground. That's a lot of people don't know about is, you know, being able to bring their labor force, blue collar, whatever technicians over and actually create homes here in the United States, which is really, really neat. Yeah, I like that point you made, Justin, about the culture injection. I actually hadn't thought about that. But Michael, to your original question, and I'm going to make sure my soapbox isn't under my desk right now, or I'll be up here the entire time. But I think a really interesting thing that happened when the miners started leaving China was that you know, TikTok, another block, it's not as if the Bitcoin network just completely fell apart. So we've talked about in the past about, oh my goodness, is a nation state going to be able to attack the Bitcoin network itself? And when China had 66% of the mining power about a year ago, there was a possibility where the Chinese government could coerce miners into mining blocks that were invalid and just say that that was valid. Now, China has banned itself from Bitcoin. So that nation state attack vector probably goes away. Now, we did see growth in Russia. We saw growth in Kazakhstan. So there is still a possibility there. But the China state attack is sort of gone now unless they do start spinning up more mining machines. It's really interesting. I think the point about anti-fragility is an important one. It's one of the reasons that many of us who are more commentators have been saying, you know, Bitcoin is here to stay. And part of that is because incentives to mine have not gone away. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin to be mined, you know, et cetera. But also because I think that there is a constant hunt for renewables in part because the idea is that they are more sustainable and that there is a longer time frame in which you can kind of encourage industry to grow. On the point, I think, about workforce and things like that, of course, there's lots to consider about immigration policies and things like that that make movement of workers in the labor force easier or harder. But I also think we should probably be careful about locking anybody who comes in this country into a particular industry or into a particular kind of lifestyle or work. There's something about that that doesn't particularly sit well with me, to be perfectly honest. So I think there's two sides to that equation. One is definitely want to credit and support labor as a general matter. That's certainly a personal view that I hold. I also think we want to be cautious about kind of importing labor from other places. That dynamic historically has not necessarily gone so well in most countries. And so we should probably just put a little more context around that and say that the optimistic point of view is to say that we are able to create opportunities for people to cross borders, to create opportunities for their families and whether, you know, domestically or abroad, but also note that there are downsides to that at times. And there can be a citizen class that occurs with any industry that does that. And certainly when it comes to the Chinese, there's a long history in this country of exploitation of Chinese laborers that we, I don't think in any way want to be referencing or pointing to. So I just wanted to provide a little bit of color to that point that was made. 
Maybe do a bit more of this geopolitical side of it, though, right? Because it also feeds into the energy conversation, you know, where there is this reality that the Bitcoin mining has a massive carbon footprint. And that in itself is a problem, right? But at the same time, Bitcoin, you know, the fact that Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy, it's just a fact of life. And the question then becomes, okay, what is the makeup of that energy? And therefore, you know, what can be done to steer the industry toward not only greening itself, but potentially playing this role in you know, funding and underwriting and developing renewable installations around the world to essentially actually assist in attacking climate change in that context. And, you know, it always struck me that, you know, I think Bitcoin is just sort of saying it'll magically get green was a little bit too sort of naive and Pollyanna-ish because there are so much subsidized fuel systems out there, right? Venezuela basically makes oil essentially free you know, and so forth. And so it's a free market. You're going to go to where the cheapest fuel is. And if it's a subsidized coal plant, that's what you're going to go to, right? That doesn't mean it's naturally the cheapest fuel around, which is what you would want the world to be doing, but it's the subsidy that makes a difference. And now we've got Kazakhstan and Russia in the mix here. So how does the US play this? Like, I mean, I've often thought like, wouldn't it be great if there was a policy just deliberately directed for green interests to try to outcompete, you know, others and using Bitcoin as a wedge in that? Does this reality now of U.S. dominance translate in any way to potentially down the road, because clearly not now, a more proactive position from whether it's federal or state or local governments to try to actually force U.S. leadership in renewable energy development? That's a really, really long-winded story for us in terms of trying to pursue these types of green energies and whatnot. I would just say briefly on renewable energy in general, the key here is the driving force. What is the driving force? Driving force is miners are trying to get cheaper power, right? So in the pursuit of cheaper power, that's going to force innovation because everyone is going to outcompete each other in the sector, or at least try to outcompete each other in the sector. So they're always going to seek the cheapest power possible in the US and in the States. So for the most part, that is going to, in our perspective, from what we're doing from the other renewable energy companies and green energy mining companies, it's driving the innovation. So how can we get the solar panels cheaper? How can we do wind cheaper? And that is causing an effect where you will go out, you know, distance wise, you just go to Mexico, South America, wherever you can go to get the cheapest possible and best result for solar. And like a really good example is in Chile, you know, one of the best spots in the world to have solar is in Chile, right? So if you take that into account, distance is a factor. The next factor is people start considering, can I start manufacturing these? Do we have enough CapEx to do this? They look at the record of solar in the United States and they go, oh gosh, maybe we shouldn't because you know, all these companies are failing. But you know, realistically speaking, because you have the ability to plug in these miners, turn them on and make money directly, the first time in history has ever happened, really, where you can consume power immediately to turn that into revenue, this changes the dynamic of what and why should you build renewable energies. So what we're looking into, and I'll speak to what we're looking into specifically, is we're looking to develop these large solar arrays in the future. And then because we're going to be able to create our own energy, create a very, very high ceiling of our kilowatt per hour costs, then we can buy much older generation miners. And then what we do is with our immersion that we have, we stack that layer on top of that. And then we can take older miners, overclock them, and then be CapEx ahead of everybody else in the industry. So for us, even though the solar ROI is slower right now, in my opinion, that will only accelerate and it'll get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as innovation continues. 
And then you stack the layer of immersion, which creates more efficient miners. And then you're able to say, okay, I don't have to go buy $12,000 miners, or can I buy $12,000 miners and overclock them and put them in immersion, et cetera. And I don't want to derail the conversation, so I apologize for going into this, but it's important because it's a combination of those things. It's not just you know the solar standalone by itself and wind. I would say of the two, wind and solar energies, by the way, that solar, because it's static power production, it's a lot better than wind in terms of its long-term maintenance cycle and life cycles. So in my opinion, it's you know, solar is ahead of wind in that way. But going back and circling back to your political comment about it, I think that because of status of what our country's in right now, the massive inflation, the spending, but most importantly, the seat in the White House. And I think that the timing is really good right now to do such a thing. So I really think if we're going to do it, we should probably do it now because we have this opportunity where we can effectively really gain ground on Bitcoin as a whole as a country. And I think that putting that injection of CapEx and capital to doing that would be a really smart idea since there's so many smart people working towards how to create more efficient green energy in general. George, maybe you just pick up on that part of it in terms of the policy priorities, because as I said, it's not just the federal government, it could be state governments, it could be local governments, but the very idea that there's a policy interest here that could actually align, right? Nick Carter, we'll talk about his piece in a little bit moment. The, the title of his column you know, was that Bitcoin is changing our energy systems and nobody quite realizes it. So there is this driver of things that could be used really proactively, you know, if it was to say underwrite the development of whether it's solar or wind. Do you see that happening? Is there an opportunity here and how might it play out? Yeah, Michael, I think talking about the U.S. government and the way that they approach policy towards this is probably a really good teaser into us, you know, talking about greening our grid in general and also having a green Bitcoin do with that what you may. But the U.S., whether we like it or not, has had a political system in the past 10, 15 years that is very much narrative driven. So the narrative is going to drive what people think about this. People who don't have a vested interest in Bitcoin now will have a vested interest in Bitcoin later if their favorite politician starts talking about it. So what needs to happen really behind the scenes, and this is going to sound very shady and sort of lobbyist leaning, is to have actual conversations with people and talk to them about what the possibilities of Bitcoin is for the mining grid, right? We in the US have another problem where the energy grid is very much underinvested in. And a really good argument that something I've written about in the past for Bitcoin mining is that Bitcoin could be this level of demand that's always there, right? During the day, we know that in the US that the price of energy is going to change based on how many people want it. Let's get to a point where Bitcoin miners can take that energy and they can turn it into Bitcoin at any time of day. So in a way, this provides a floor to how much revenue can come into the utilities at XYZ states, and that's going to enable more investment in the grid. So goes the story, right? This is sort of a utopian view of the future. So, But politicians are in the business of bringing hope to the people, right? Or at least a lot of them say that. So if that narrative can catch wind with whatever politician or super PAC group or whatever, that can actually push forward that narrative. And it sounds weird with Bitcoiners you know, looking towards the government to be like, ooh, please help us, please help us. But it's an important part of the world we live in, right? You know, it's funny when you're talking about like finding the right politician, the lawmaker who gets it, right? I must say, I find it ironic that the one person right now who seems to be articulating this better than anybody else in Congress 
is the one person who is the biggest, most divisive person in Congress. It's Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. <laughs> Cruz is articulating this and he's understanding it very, very well, but he's the worst messenger because no other politician wants to be on stage with him. So <laughs> I think your point's a really good one, George, but there's many layers to this, right? It's like finding the right person to get it, to send a message correctly. You know, it's a really complicated process. Your narrative issue, I think, is really important. Yeah, and I don't mean to talk too much about politics, but there is a level of egotism that we also have to fight with our politicians, right? You have to be very self-centered to want to be a Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz may be saying things he does or does not believe, but if it pushes forward something that we care about, then again, I sound very political and it's not really my nature, but it is an important thing to understand. I do think that politics and the political environment is important though, right? And so what we often say, Michael and I, about the crypto ecosystem is it's like the proverbial elephant where someone's holding the tail and someone's holding the trunk and someone's holding the ear. And very few people, frankly, have the inclination or maybe even the time to really understand the complexities of this brand new thing. When I say brand new, I mean like from a standpoint of it doesn't fit into boxes that are familiar to regulators or to a lot of leaders. So they anchor on what it is that can be understandable. And I imagine, you know, in the case of Ted Cruz, that this particular thing is something that has made sense to him. And certainly when I hear the arguments, they're quite cogent and oftentimes evidence-based. I take the point about the message versus the messenger, which is a whole other interesting thing. And it leads to kind of a question that I just generally have. And maybe this is really more for George, but I'd love to hear responses on this from you, Michael. It's just kind of like, what do we do with that? You know, given the reality is that this industry is comprised of so many different parts. I mean, you've got the whole, you know, financial regulators that are looking at kind of applications and use cases and what's happening with whom and where and security and privacy and what all these different questions. You've got mining operations, you know, we have which have a whole other area that arguably, you know, is relevant from standpoint. In order to kind of get this ecosystem, I don't know, to really kind of move things forward in a way productively with legislation and regulation, you do have to have an understanding of how these component parts fit together. And that is messaging. I don't know that we've landed. I don't know that most people, even those who are educated about the space, understand really the connection between energy and mining and financial services and you know, all these different kinds of pieces because they're often talked about quite separately. So I just kind of throw this to the group. You know, What do we do with that? And what is the response to that? And frankly, is it even reasonable to expect anybody who's a regulator who's responsible for a particular piece or a legislator who is responsible for a particular constituency to be that I don't have to be thinking like that. You know, is it up to us to kind of thread those things together and create the right pieces? Yeah, I probably have a pretty self-serving answer here, given my employer is Coindesk. <laughs> but there's going to be, and there has been, and there will continue to be a very strong educational push from people like me, people like Michael, people like you, Sheila, maybe less so with Justin, because you're actually doing stuff out there. But we have a huge educational gap between what the regulators know and what the regulators don't know. So yeah, you said Ted Cruz got pulled up the curve. He did get pulled up the curve. Someone pulled him up that curve. I doubt, very, very strongly doubt that he went on Twitter himself. I went down the rabbit hole. So we're going to have to continue educating on our side. People like Justin are going to have to continue doing what he does, but there is going to have to be a push. I totally agree with you. Justin, how much time do you guys spend, you know, call it lobbying, call it discussing, talking to policymakers? So I would say not a ton. But we definitely do, for sure. Our recent move to our headquarters going to Wyoming, we've been communicating with, you know, Senator Lemus over there and whatnot. And that's basically already, you know, a bird in the hand there. But ultimately, in Washington state, it's been very difficult for us because there's not a lot of connectivity and ability to really lobby there. 
that's easy. There's no low-hanging fruit over here. So for us, we haven't done a lot over here. Texas, Wyoming, they're welcoming these types of things right now. So Wyoming, Texas, Florida, they're all kind of open arms. Come over here, talk to us, let us know. Like They're very open-minded is what I would say, I guess, right now. You know, being born and raised in Washington my entire life, it's a beautiful state. It's great. I love it. But the political climate here is very difficult for us as a mining company. To give you just a real quick backdrop, you know, three years ago, Eastern Washington, you know, we basically were kicked out of Eastern Washington. I bought a property, was going to develop a site. And they're like, nope, can't do that. You know, I was like, wow, that's just great. Thanks a lot. So there's a lot of value and certainty kind of circling back a little bit to, you know, the Chinese exodus to the United States. Certainty is important because you need to know, I'm going to be building this gigantic farm here for, I don't know, whatever, 50, 100 megawatts, 300 megawatts, whatever that is. And I need to have certainty that I'm going to be able to run my operations here for some time because I'm deploying millions of dollars in capital into this. So, yeah. So when you're talking to lobbyists, you know, whoever is going to be more welcoming and invitational to hearing and discussing matters with you, those are the states that are going to garner more attention to mining operations. That's all there is to it, because we got to know that if we're going to build a building, you know, haha, we got you now because the local private electrical company, they want to raise rates on you. You can't do anything about it because you have multi-millions of dollars sitting there and you're stuck. So you got to make sure you have a great relationship. And that starts with that level of lobbying and making sure you can talk to the legislative, you know, anyways, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's really interesting, you know, Justin, because of course there's a bit of a chicken and egg, right? So the way that public utilities are structured is state by state, and there's differences there to some extent. And so thinking through what is actually possible state by state is an interesting question. And then the relationship between that particular state and then maybe land availability, because of course mining operations require land, all these kinds of things are really interesting. And so I think the point to land is it's not a coincidence that Senator Loomis and Senator Cruz know a bit more about this industry. There's certainly division in the level of education that occurs, and it's not surprising that they are maybe a little further up to your point, to George's point, up the curve, because there is a reason that they might have an easier time either attracting mining operations to their state, or there's an interest in doing that because it's seen as an opportunity to create a new industry that might provide jobs and other kinds of things that the state needs and that you're not going to find that same kind of thing in every state. And so there's a precondition almost that is going to make a leader of a particular jurisdiction more open to certain kinds of conversations than others. It's not because they don't understand what's going on. It's because it's just maybe not the same priority. And I think the interesting thing to think about is when you look at municipalities versus state or provincial level versus national versus regional, there's dilution there, right? Like Wyoming and Texas are going to be more interested than maybe the United States as a whole, because not everybody in the United States is like Wyoming and Texas and states that have similar profiles to those states. So it becomes interesting to think about federal level, even global policy, when there is such diversity in some of these things. And of course, that's true for policymaking as a general matter. I don't mean to isolate mining operations, but, you know, again, there's a clear path there. And I want to draw that connection. Great point, Sheila. Great point. You know, to George, do you want to discuss a little bit before we wind this up? There was this piece by Nick Carter on Coindesk this week. And, you know, Nick, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he's really sort of focusing on how he's gone and shifted his expectations as to the role that Bitcoin and the interplay between Bitcoin and green energy. And there's two points in particular I thought that were really interesting. He was saying that, like, you know, solar and wind couldn't really be, but the thinking was that it really wasn't going to be very reliable for miners because it is unreliable, right? I mean, essentially, you've got a limited lifespan for your miners. And then essentially, if you're not going to have consistent power the whole time, 
essentially you're going to have these problems because you're sitting on idle capital that's just going to be wasted. Eventually, you'll be outcompeted because a new version of a faster, more efficient miner will come on the market and you've wasted all that time. You want to make the most of it in a short period of time. But he talked about a number of things that are changing this. And one was that there is this concept of life cycle mining where you just be more opportunistic with it. And you can take these older inefficient miners and hang on to them for a while, but use them on either the price or there is there's an abundant amount of cheap energy available. And you sort of turn it on and run with that. And you just have a much more fluid environment. The other was a hybrid mining where you set the structure up and so that your rig is both behind the meter and in front of the meter in the sense that like you can draw from the grid when there's no solar power available, but you can turn it on to solar when it is it. And the other is the fact that miners themselves are lasting longer. And what I find really interesting about that framework is that it may be that the free market can now play a more active role, actually, in driving this toward renewables, rather than saying, oh, we need a policy maker to do this and this and this, to figure out what the connection between the right renewable mix and the mining company are. It's like, no, actually, if you add all this up and play this game right, you can quite profitably use solar or wind or whatever in these environments. I find that a fascinating scenario because maybe the sort of what I sometimes thought Pollyanna-ish view of the Bitcoin money industry, that they're just going to magically, you know, by just letting the free market win, we're all going to turn green. I thought that was naive. Maybe not. (laughs) This is happening. So I don't know, George, if you've given some thought to that. Yeah, I'm very glad that Coindesk published this piece because I hadn't actually heard about concrete things like life cycle mining happening in practice. I talked a little bit earlier about narratives and that driving the US political system. And that's important because when we talk about the greenifying Bitcoin, every conversation seemed to coalesce around this utopian society where these poor communities that are beside waterfalls were all of a sudden going to become these centers of commerce, right? And while that is totally a possibility and would be amazing if that happened, it just felt very utopic and very way out there. And now we start having actual conversations around people talking about life cycle mining, and that makes sense. To put the older miners near the renewable energy, that's more intermittent, and you can get that done. So it's starting to feel like things make sense now. It is something now that people are actually doing. It's exciting. Yeah. I don't know. Have you looked into this, Justin, and you know, these shifts in strategies and what it means for your industry? Yeah, they're all applicable. That article is great. And I 100% agree with all of them. The reality is, when you're talking about hybrid mining, it's critical because what you can do is you can increase your ROI or at least get faster to your break even on your CapEx. If you deploy the solar and you're able to attach to the grid, you sell during the peak times and then you buy back at nighttime or when there's less demand in general. So that is a critical, critical component to what we're doing and we're going to be doing more of. Right now, it's not, you know, we haven't substantiated that in terms of actually doing it. The one problem with solar and wind, you know, both included in this, is the time it takes to build it. That's one big problem with it in general. But all that being said, going back to the main point here is I touched on it earlier where you can take the old generation models. And for us, like I said, we'd use immersion and we have our own proprietary technology that we developed. We dunk it in these things. We take an older, you know, an S17 or even go back to like an S15 even. And we can take those miners and typically get a much higher terahash anywhere between 40 to 65% more 
And then because you're cooling better in the immersion, and then all of a sudden now you can take that immersion and plop that onto a green grid, it makes a ton of sense because now your risks are very, very low because now you're hedging your risks by lowering your kilowatt per hour price. So we're incentivized to get that lower kilowatt per hour price for ourselves. So essentially, it's a no-brainer when you talk about if you have the ability to, one, like we talked about earlier, go borrow the money to go get solar, and then your amortization and your depreciation, basically, you know, it pays for itself on your taxes alone, however you accelerate that on your schedule for your taxes. And then on top of that, you're able to make like direct money from that. You don't have to sell it to a PUD or a local utility. That's great for a backup, but that's not what your intention is. Your intention is to actually mine and sell it to the Bitcoin network, your computational power. So we're working with a couple of people right now that are actually literally doing this as we speak. So I can speak from my own experiences here. Ultimately, all those options are great. So the way I look at it is this is only going to continue. And if we're doing this, I don't find myself to be some genius that's like, you know, I know this big secret that someone else doesn't know. It's going to continue. More and more mining companies are going to do this. Thus begins, in my opinion, the green revolution, because this is really what is going to market because now everyone is economically incentivized to do so. That's a really good point. You get this sense of momentum toward a point. It looks so wasteful right now, just because it's so driven by this speculation of the else, but ultimately the economics of it and the technology that continually makes the possibilities of driving you incentivized toward that cheaper stuff is moving in that direction. It's hard for me to step back and say it's not going to get there. But at the same time, the bigger question from saving the planet's perspective is like, do we have enough time, right? That is the big question here. It's like, it's all very well. How do we accelerate this to the absolute max, I think is the most important thing. And is Bitcoin the right way to do it? There's a whole other conversation to be had around this, but we don't have any more time left to discuss these bigger, equally important issues, unfortunately. So what I'm going to do is just simply thank you guys. Justin Padola from Elite Mining, thank you very much. George Kaloudis, you know, my colleague from Coindesk, always insightful to have you weigh in on these sorts of things. And of course, my co-host Sheila Warren from the World Economic Forum. Thank you, as always, for being here. That's it for now, folks. Come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Justin Padola, and George Kaloudis. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thank you.